Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I am a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunova in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with a prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, thank you, Lord, once again for bringing us together to study, to pray, to fellowship, to build one another up in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Lord, we're thankful and uh, excited for the time period that we live in because unlike the rest of the world, we don't have a doom and gloom view of what's going on around us. Uh, Lord, we know that sin is going to increase as the end of days uh, marches on. We know also that um, our adversary, the devil, is going to increasingly in um, ramp up his agenda to um, suppress the light of God, to suppress the truth of Messiah uh, in this world and in our society. And for that reason, Lord, we take the um, responsibility seriously that we need to be about our Father's business. And Lord, for us, that means right now, Study, studying to show ourselves approved, pressing into your words, uh, availing ourselves of your Holy Spirit so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you and that are holy, set apart. Lord, we ask you to continue to protect us from the adversary, protect us from evil men, protect us from the agenda of those who would seek to destroy, excuse me, destroy the gospel and to tear down the kingdom of God. Help us to put on the armor uh, of Ephesians chapter 6. Help us to um, um, learn how to uh, uh, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, help us to continue to walk in Torah and to be a light for those uh, around us. Thank you for the book of Galatians. Thank you for um, preserving the truths. Thank you for superintending uh, the lessons so that we can uh, dive in and drink from the deep well of wisdom that is contained in this precious book of Galatians. Bless each and every student who's joined tonight. Lord, I pray that you will give them a supernatural capacity to uh, understand truth and to press in and to retain the things that they're learning. Thank you for the fall festivals. Uh, Lord, we are so very uh, excited that you have not abandoned us but that you're demonstrating your love for us, uh, your continued um, uh, 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 presence with us uh, by um, 
revealing yourself to us through these fall festivals. If we will be careful to look, we will see the Messiah in every single feast day. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome opportunity. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. All right, let's date stamp this recording. Today is October the 8th, 2016. And we're marching our way through my Galatians commentary. This is week 41. We've just returned from a, an, a longer break than usual. Most of our semester breaks are two weeks long. As you know, we um, meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for, break for two weeks, and then we just pick up again and meet for 10 weeks and go like that. We took an extra break, extra week break because of um, uh, Yom Tua, uh Rosh Hashanah on your calendar, and uh, last week. And so now we're ready to start our look at uh, exiting Galatians again. Let's start with some liturgy, as I'm fond of doing. For those of you who are in the class with me live tonight, we're meeting via Skype. Uh, just a reminder, those of you who can't meet with us week by week uh, for the hour-long teaching, you're certainly welcome to... Uh, pick up the teaching, the audio commentary, as I upload it a few days afterwards. Uh, head on out to either iTunes and search for my name, Ariel Hanavi, or type in Galatians, and you can be you can find it that way. Or um, go to my website at tetzetora.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And on the navigation menu on the top, click on Exegeting Galatians, or Galatians Commentary. And scroll down the page and you'll find a link that will uh, point you to either the live study and or the audio recordings that I upload. You can also visit me at my congregational website, uh, graftedin.com. And uh, using the navigation menus along the top, again, uh, click on the um, Galatians study, Exegeting Galatians, I think it's named there. And you can find the audios parked there as well. Okay, without further ado, let's read some liturgy. I'm going to read a selection. Uh, I, I usually read a selection of the Old Testament, uh, meaning some Hebrew, and then I read something out of the New Testament, meaning some Greek, and then we just read some English translations of both of them. And for this section on uh, the conclusion, which we're parked in now, I've been using the traditional uh, Birkat the Torah, the blessing for the Torah, uh, the study that we, uh, that the, um, the, the words that we speak before we engross in Torah study. You can find this in any, in any traditional prayer book, Siddur, um, or something like that. And I just borrowed this uh, version from, uh, I think it's HebrewForChristians.com. Let's read the English first, and then I'll go back and read the Hebrew. This reads, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you and may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's uh, go back and read the Hebrew. 
of that same blessing. The Hebrew reads, I'm sorry, let's start that line again. That's our Hebrew for the liturgy. Let's jump over to a passage out of the New Testament, the Apostolic Scriptures, the however you're used to referring to it. And this is the passage I've been using out of Galatians because of the uh, kind of the general uh, take on this passage, uh, the standard interpretation that we see in Christian circles. And of course, most of you who follow my commentaries know by now that I don't hold to the traditional view that the Christians take on this passage. And so I'm reading this one as a reminder of a, a perhaps an alternate and what I think is a better way to understand the passage. Uh, it reads Galatians 5, 1 through 6. This is English Standard Version for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And let's read the Greek of that as well. I think this is the... Um, uh, this is the Nestle 1904 Greek, or what some people would see as the um, the Greek New Testament, the GNT version. Uh, the Greek reads, Te Lutheria hemas Christos e Lutherosen, stekete unkai me palen zugu duleas en ekeste, ide ego palos lego human hati in peritem nesta, Christos humas uden ofelese. Marturo mai de palen panti anthropo per timnameno, hati o felates, est in halen ton nomen poiesai. Cateragetheta apo Christu hotinis in namo decauste, tes caritas exipasete. Hemas, I'm sorry, hemes gar pneumati epistios elpida decausunes apec decametha. In gar Christo Jesu ute per tume. Ti iscue ite acrobustia, ala pistis diacapes in ergumene. Okay, that will be our Greek selection for tonight. Just want to remind everyone that um, the live study that we're engaged in right now is about an hour long, and then afterwards, for those of you who are able to make the live study, 
I, and I certainly encourage and welcome everyone out to, to the live study. You also get a chance to engage in about a 15 or 20 minute live chat with me after the study where you can open your microphone if you're using chat, uh, Skype, open your microphone and then you can, uh, we can ask questions, uh, pose comments, um, we can just kind of encourage one another for that 15 or 20 minutes. Um, so everyone's welcome to join. Uh, Skype is free. The study is free. The commentary is free. I don't charge for any of all that. I just want to make uh, uh, an opportunity available for all of us to be able to get together. So once a week at least. All right, let's jump into the commentary. Just a real brief reminder, uh, just a quickie, uh, just to show you where we're at in the commentary. For those of you who are in the live class right now, you'll see I'm parked on the contents for the commentary. And this is from my website, tatesatora.com, the uh, Galatians commentary link. Um, we've been working our way through the commentary, and we've come quite a ways through it. We're, we're really mostly most of the way through it. We started with a preface and 10 common questions regarding to our observance for Gentile Christians. Next, we looked at an introduction. After that, we turned to the topic sections, number 1 through 10. Number 1, Brit Milah, Covenant of Circumcision. Number two, ouch factor, why the male reproductive organ? Number three, works of law, part one, proselyte conversion, understanding the background, understanding the background to the cultural setting of Galatians. Number four, works of law, part two, examining Galatians 2.16. We did kind of a test case on that passage. Number five, covenantal nomism and justification. Number six, lessons from Acts chapter 10. Number seven, under the law. Number eight, Shomer Mitzvot, which is Hebrew for Torah observant. Number nine, summary, the part that we're in right now, the summary. And then uh, we're going to work our way towards number 10, which is entitled The Promise, Trust, and Obey. And then after that, if you're looking at uh, the uh, table of contents for the study, you'll see that I turn towards an excursus selection of tough passages. And the excursus, the excursus basically uh, picks out a select few um, verses or passages out of the book of Galatians, um, where we just kind of go chapter by chapter, uh, all six chapters, and we don't hit every verse. This is not an exhaustive study to the book of Galatians. In fact, the study is only about 180 pages or so written uh, PDF version. Instead, all I do is I highlight many of the passages that regularly receive um, what I should say is special attention whenever we have dialogues between traditional Christian groups and traditional what I call Messianic groups or Torah observant groups. And the dialogue is usually over... Uh, the centrality of Torah in the ongoing life, the ongoing um, use of Torah in the life of a believer, a Gentile Christian, uh, for, for instance. Uh, what does Paul mean by his um, cryptic phrases under the law, works of the law, circumcision, or even the word Torah itself? Uh, there's usually some sh sharp disagreement, uh, all done, of course, within the love of Messiah, which I encourage. I think it's healthy to engage in... Um, and this type of conversation. So don't don't shy away from that. So with that in mind, let's turn to the um, let's turn to where we left off uh, three weeks ago. We are we're really ready to start a new um, paragraph in this section of the uh, uh, 
summary. And we're near the bottom of page 79 and the top of page 80. We're ready to start this section called Shomer Mitzvot, where we talk about Torah observance. And so basically, this is a summary. Um, if you don't even have time to read the commentary, the entire 180 pages, then as the author, I recommend that you at least read the summary. The summary is probably, I don't know, maybe 20 pages. And if you read the summary, or maybe at least the introduction, one of the two, introduction or the summary, I think you'll at least get the gist of what I'm trying to convey in my commentary, because I go back and uh, summarize, as the uh, title sounds, title indicates. All right, let me back up one paragraph and read what I read last week. As in the closing, this will provide a segue to tonight's study. This was under the section of... Um, of uh, under the law, speaking of under the law, trying to uh, discuss this phrase, what does Paul mean by under the law? Uh, it's, it's used in Galatians a few times, and it's more uh, familiar from Romans, particularly Romans 6.14. Those of us who claim membership, as I'm reading, those of us who claim membership in an existing Torah community, the One Law Movement, a.k.a. the Messianic Jewish Movement, uh, we confidently affirm and teach obligation to Torah commands for both Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. That first sentence alone sets us apart from mainstream Christianity, who teaches that the law essentially has been done away with, has been relaxed in Jesus, has been set aside by Messiah, has been fulfilled by Jesus, has been um, nailed to the cross, has been um, superseded by the new covenant uh, whatever verbiage you want to use to describe essentially the doing away or the passing away of an era called law and the ushering in of an era called grace. The dispensation of law has come to an end and this dispensation of grace has, uh, has emerged, has dawned. Something to that effect. That's the popular view in Christian circles today and that's the view that I oppose as a Messianic Jewish man as a person who exists in the Torah community. Of course, this is an in-house debate, right? We both agree in about uh, the centrality of Jesus in our lives. So that's what makes it, a, I think, a valuable debate. Let's keep reading. And yet, um, Paul says in Romans 6.14, as if, as if to challenge the idea that Torah is still relevant, uh, still uh, applicable, Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law but under grace. And the popular uh, interpretation of that verse, uh, the passage, Romans 6.14, that we're not under the law but under grace, the popular traditional interpretation teaches that this means that we're not obligated, taking the phrase under law to mean under obligation to the law. This would seem to have Paul saying to Christians, at least Christians, but probably to Jewish believers as well, uh, at least I think that's what many Christians teach, um, we don't have to keep the law anymore. We don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore. We don't have to keep kosher anymore. We certainly don't have to worry about the festivals that we're in right now, the fall festivals, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, things like that. You don't have to worry about wearing tzitzit. Don't concern yourself with putting a mezuzah on your door. Don't concern yourself with um, any of anything that you would read that would sound like a ceremonial law. Anything that would sound like a ritual law, anything related to the tabernacle or temple of the of uh, days gone by, don't concern yourself with any of that anymore. Just press in, press on in the spirit. Focus on the New Testament. Focus on Yeshua, and you'll be fine. Of course, I'm speaking in hyperbole, but that's the general view that I encounter as I uh, study with the Christians. As I keep reading, the difficulty in correctly interpreting Paul 
is in understanding that his uses of the word law in many of his letters, both uh, Romans and Galatians, I find that he applies the definition from context, and I think we need to do the same, which means that the root Greek word used for law, which is namos, can apply to a variety of definitions, depending on how he's using them in, in, in the passage in front of us. So, for instance, Paul's, quote, not under the law, end quote, phrase that we find in Romans 6.14 is actually preceded by the phrase, for sin shall not have dominion over you. And that's the context of at least that verse. And so in this verse, we can easily identify, at least I think we should be able to, we can easily identify that in this verse, law doesn't mean we're not under obligation to Torah commands. To say to use this verse to insert the interpretation that we're not under the we're not under obligation to keep the law is, in my opinion, to practice pretext, to practice eisegesis instead of exegesis, to insert a, a, an opinion that was not existent at the time that Paul wrote the text that he wrote the verse. So uh, I think it's a, 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 an unfortunate way to view the passage. Rather, as I keep reading. I think law here most naturally functions in this verse as shorthand for not under the bondage of sin and therefore under the condemnation of the law, end quote. So I've got this lengthy paraphrase that I use for not under the law, uh, the word under the law, huponamon, huponamon there in the Greek. Uh, I think it refers to not under the bondage of sin and therefore under the condemnation of law. And we have to stop and build the context and, and, and affirm that uh, condemnation of the law is a just condemnation that's reserved for unrepentant sinners. Correct? God rightfully judges unrepentant sinners because they are unrepentant. For that very reason, those who thumb their nose at God's righteousness, those who reject, those who reject the free offer of um, being set free by the Messiah's atonement, these are though these are the people who um, find themselves under the condemnation that God pronounces for sinners. And the reason we believers, as I finish this uh, passage, this paragraph, the reason we uh, believers are not under the condemnation of the law, the, the reason we're not under condemnation, or the reason we're not under the law, is because we're not under bondage. And why are we not under bondage? Because we have been set free and are under the grace of Yeshua's blood. We are filled with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. We have been brought into the light of Messiah because of his sacrifice. Therefore, we have been set free from the bondage of our own sin. We have been set free from our own proclivities to sin. We have been given a new nature, a new volition, a new will to follow after God's ways and to, um, to obey the Messiah exactly the way God wants us. doesn't mean we're perfect. But it certainly means that we are no longer con condemned sinners. And the proof, if we were to continue reading in Romans, we would find that in Romans 8.1, the, the familiar verse, passage says, There's therefore, no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, right. So let's keep reading now. Let's turn now to um, the paragraph entitled Shomer Mitzvot, which uh, is a Hebrew word that, that uh, refers to Torah observance. And this will be the last paragraph uh, um, of this section of the summary. And uh, if you want to get the full treatment of my Shomer Mitzvot uh, comments, then uh, scroll back up into the commentary and read them up in section 8. 
But let's read this section too. I think we'll easily be able to finish this tonight. We've only got we're about halfway through our hour of study, and um, let me see how many pages we have here. Uh, we've got one, two, only two pages. Yeah, I think I should be able to to easily um, talk about this tonight comfortably. So listen up. Lastly, in section eight, top of page eighty, we devoted an entire chapter to talk about Torah observance, or quote, Shomer Mitzvot, end quote, as many religious Jews call it, does Galatians signal the end of the age of law for Christians? That's really the big question. As many people study the book of Galatians, it's, it is a natural question to ask when you read the book and when you embark on a study of the book. Does Galatians signal the end of the law for Christians? Did the Apostle Paul preach the end of the law? In my opinion, the short answers are no and no, right? It's plain and simple. Paul did not preach the end of the law, and Galatians does not signal the end of the, the age, uh, the end of the age of law for Christians. There's no dispensational uh, switching off going on here. Paul not only did Torah, but he also taught others to do the Torah. So if Paul is teaching the end or abrogation of the law or the, the supersession of law by the uh, grace of Christ or something to that effect, then um, Paul seems to be acting hypocritically. Let's, let's look at this for a moment. For instance, the fact that Paul did Torah and also taught others to do the Torah, these facts that I'm uh, mentioning can easily be observed by James' instructions to Paul in Acts 21-24. Let me just pull a brief quote from there. Quote, thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law, end quote. Now, if you remember, James, as I say in my commentary, was addressing this specific rumor among the Judean Jews concerning Paul. And what was that rumor? Let's read again from the uh, Acts 21 passage, quote, that you, Paul, teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs, end quote. That was the rumor. That was the rumor. And what did Paul ask, I'm sorry, what did P, uh, James ask Paul to do in order to not only to not only dispel the rumor, but to demonstrate the exact opposite? What did James ask him to do? James asked him to um, actually take, take part in, in a, uh, um, a a sacrificial ceremony uh, take place in bringing some sacrifices take place uh, go with some men and and fulfill their vows at the temple there what do we read in my commentary paul demonstrated by his lifestyle not only just by teaching not only just by his letters but by his very lifestyle that the law did not come to an end in messiah at least for jews right at least for Jews, because we know Paul was a Jew, James is a Jew, and the uh, the Jews that were described in Acts 21, uh, what does it say there that they are all zealous for the law, and that and they hold to faith in Messiah. So at least we know it's not coming to an end for Jews. We can at least um, uh, make that uh, admission. But Paul, moreover, admitted to this fact that he still upheld the law. So he not only demonstrated it by his lifestyle, he also admitted to this fact later on in his life. And if you look up Acts 21-24, Acts 
Acts 24, 14 through 16, Acts 25, 8, and Acts 26, 4 and 5. Go back and read those passages. You're going to find Paul confessing that he uh, holds to um, everything written in the Law and the Prophets. He he worships God in accordance with um, what his fellow Jewish uh, countrymen also believe. Uh, in other words, he's not forming a new tr a, a relationship to God through a new religion called Christianity. He's not trying to um, uh, destroy Judaism. He's not trying to uh, bring the age of law to a close and usher in the era of grace and Messiah. None of that is happening at all. All of that really, those those viewpoints, those that theology, is really, in my understanding, um, a later invention by the uh, later emerging Gentile communities that made a decisive break from the oppressive, uh, unbelieving Jewish communities that were basically kicking them out of the synagogues. So let's keep reading. If you also um, carefully look at James' instructions to Paul, notice also James doesn't add any supposed quote-unquote three-part breakdown to the law. We've heard this before, the moral, the ceremonial, the civil, right? You yourself also live in accordance and live in observance of the law, James tells Paul. James doesn't say you yourself also live in observance of the, the moral and the you also live in observance of the moral law, but you've taken a break from the civil, the civil and the ceremonial. James doesn't mention any, any three-part breakdown to the law. He just says law, right? And I think that this is telling. This is only one place that we see this, but uh, I think this would indicate that these three designations are probably unsanctioned man-made distinctions. And as such, I think they're confusing and unnecessary. I say confusing because if you actually try to go back through the Law of Moses through the first five books and try and uh, accurately tag which ones are moral, which ones are ceremonial, which ones are civil, I think you're going to find yourself in trouble because they don't lend themselves to such an easily um, caricatured uh, des uh, designation. Um, you know, sometimes Christians are fond of saying, well, the, the Sabbath was... Obviously, a ceremonial law, um, you know, a, 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 a ritual law. A circumcision is obviously a ritual law, so those are done away with. But then you'll hear the same Christian teachers say, but killing is a moral law. Homosexuality is, is a law that, that, that's tied to moral values. Um, adultery is tied to moral values. And therefore, even though we're not obligated to keep the ceremonial and the civil aspects of law, as Christians, and particularly as Gentile believers, we are certainly obligated to uphold and keep the, the moral parts of the law, the parts that um, are tied to you know, uh, murder and, and theft and lying and um, uh, adultery and, and uh, things like that. And in, in essence, Christianity tries to have its cake and eat it too by saying that we're not under the law, but yet doesn't want to be viewed as stone-cold lawbreakers. And uh, to some degree, I commend that effort because at least they're trying to make sense of the fact that uh, if the law is done away with, does this mean we can just murder, steal, 
uh, you know, commit adultery and, and things like that? Obviously, the answer is no. We can't do all those things. But I think it's better if we just get a, do, do away with all of those, those man-made distinctions anyway and just see the law as a, um, as a whole, as a, a collective whole that God uh, gives to us and, and, and expects us to walk into. And the parts that we can't keep, well, we have to worry. We have to let God worry about that. We can't keep them because they're not practically able to be kept. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. There are no priests. There are no animals to bring things like that. We can't keep many of those things because they just, they're, they're, it's just not possible to do. But to the things that we can do, keeping Sabbath, circumcision, uh, festivals, wearing mezuzah, I'm sorry, wearing wearing tzitzit and putting mezuzah on our door, just to name a few. Let's let's keep doing those. All right. Also, as I may add, just before I keep reading, many of the laws that uh, Christianity says are done away with, ceremonial and civil, conveniently make a person look, and I'm using air quotes with my fingers, it conveniently make you look Jewish, right? If you keep the ceremonial and civil parts of the law, you will look suspiciously like the Jews look. But if you only keep the moral parts of the law, then oftentimes people can't tell that you are even Jewish. You simply will resemble your average Christian without any uh, resemblance to Judaism. And so I think it's a convenient lie from the adversary to teach that the ceremonial and civil parts are done away with because of the um, concerted attack from the adversary against the Jewish people as a, uh, as a covenant people of God, as a... Um, as a uh, uh, um, as the elect God, uh, we we know that from reading the scriptures that uh, the Jewish people have been targeted by the adversary. So how else? What what better way to uh, destroy the Jewish people than to destroy uh, the heritage that is uh, attached to Torah observance, the parts that make yourself look Jewish? All right, let's keep reading. Speaking about this idea of Torah observance, Shomer Mitzvot, we can also easily observe. Paul's view of the law in Romans 3.31. Let's read this verse. Quote, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I think that verse is self-explanatory. I don't even really have to um, make any comment on it. We do not overthrow the law. We uphold the law. And the faith, of course, that Paul's referencing is the faith that Jews and Gentiles enjoy as they uh, walk in the footsteps of Messiah, as they um, um, understand their position in God through Messiah, as they walk by the Spirit, and as we fellowship one with another. This is the faith that we um, enjoin upon one another. This is the faith that we affirm is for Jews and Gentiles. And this faith does not destroy the law. On the contrary, Paul says, uh, we uphold the law. Sounds pretty simple to me. We could also use Romans 7.22, I say in my commentary. Quote, this is Paul speaking. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. End quote. Now, this is Paul speaking as a believer. How could he delight in the law of God in his inner being if the law has been done away with? If the law has been su su suppressed, if it's been relaxed, if it's been... Uh, superseded by a law of Christ or superseded by the New Testament or something to that effect. Why would he delight in the law of God? And of course, we know the law that he's referring to at, at the very least includes the law of Moses, the law of God, right? First five books. 
Also, see Romans 7.25, a few short verses later. Quote, So then, Paul says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Kind of a, another way of saying I delight in the law of God, my inner beings. Talking about law being written on the inner, in, inward parts of, it, of, his, of his being. I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As a believer, Paul understands that there's a battle going on inside the believer. The minute you become a child of God, a child of Abraham, you take up arms against the adversary. You are no longer a member of his camp. You're no longer in his army. You have now switched sides. Your allegiance is now owed to the Messiah, and he's your new captain. In, in, in He's your new um, commander-in-chief. And because the Messiah is the captain of hosts, right? He's the one that we serve. Then the devil, of course, is going to do his best to oppose you. And so what happens? On the inside, we, we, we have this allegiance to God. We have this allegiance that's, that's strengthened by the Holy Spirit within us. And we say yes to God and yes to Yeshua on the inside. And why not? Because that's what God promised he would do in, say, Ezekiel chapter 36, in, say, Jeremiah chapter 31, where God says, I'll place my spirit within them. I'll take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And I'll pour my Torah within them. I'll put my Torah on the inward parts. So we know and we can expect that there's going to be this repository of, of heavenly wisdom on the inside. And yet we live with the reality that our members haven't caught up to the reality yet. We, we know that on the outside, our flesh still has these uh, holdups, these hang-ups. And so Paul can say, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so we have a battle, and, it, and we struggle. We struggle with lust. We struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. We struggle with, with um, uh, um, jealousy. We struggle with anger. We struggle with frustration. We struggle with doubt and disbelief. Even as believers, we struggle. And we should struggle... Because if we were not believers, we would just yield. We would just give in. And there wouldn't be the, the, the heavy weighing on our conscience whenever we sin. There wouldn't be the, uh, uh, what do we say, there wouldn't be the conviction from the Holy Spirit on the inside. But that doesn't mean the law is done away with. It just means that we're seeking to do better. It means that we're seeking to, to please God and that it, it hurts our heart whenever we uh, fall and whenever we fail and whenever we uh, continue to sin. So... Um, I, I think it's a really easy passage to understand, Romans chapter 7. Let's keep reading my commentary. What then did we learn concerning the believer's relationship to the law? Right? If if I'm teaching, if, if my thesis is correct, if my hypothesis is correct, um, if my position is right that the law has not been done away with in Christ, then what is the believer's relationship to the law? What came to an end in Messiah, I go on to say, it's not the law itself, but the curse of the law for those in Messiah. And there's that Romans 8.1 passage, again, that reference there is, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as I'm quoting it from the KJV from memory. There's no condemnation. We are not under the curse of the law anymore. However, and this is a very careful distinction, this curse is still in effect for those outside of the Messiah. So it's not that the law came to an end when we became a believer, and it's not even that the curse of the law came to an end when we became a believer. Rather, those of us who were in Messiah had been set free from the curse. Rather, and those who are outside of Messiah, 
are still under the curse. What also came to an end in Messiah, I go on to say in my commentary, was this wall of, of ethnic separation, the wall of religious separation that was erected particularly in the first century by the Jewish communities in Israel who were wishing to keep a religious separation between Gentiles and Jews. Recall from studying the book of Acts and from reading the book of Romans and Galatians or just reading through my commentaries that Jews and Gentiles were separated by their ethnicities. Jews were thought to be the elect of God, the chosen of God, the special people of God based on, not only on their election, but from their perspective, from their own self-examination, they also thought that they were special merely because they were Jewish, merely because of their heritage, merely because of the um, fact that they were the circumcised people. And that caused them to kind of develop a, 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 a collective um, pride uh, over and against Gentiles who didn't also share the same Jewish heritage, Jewish ethnicity, Jewish lifestyle, Jewish religious affiliation, etc., etc. So um, read Ephesians 2, 11 through, and I got a typo there, I think it's 11 through 22. Uh, read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, where Paul talks about this wall of separation that existed and that, that the Messiah uh, brought this wall of separation down. And it's too often um, taught that this wall of separation was the Torah, that the Torah was what separated Jews from Gentile. And in, in effect, because Jews kept Torah and Gentiles didn't, it's easy to make that assumption that the Torah was what separated Jews from Gentiles. And, and there's a little bit of truth to the fact that those who keep Torah are in fact different from those who don't, right? Obviously, those who walk into the ways of God are going to be um, markedly distinct from those who don't walk in the ways of God, particularly in, a, in terms of um, behavioral righteousness. Obviously, those who are behaviorally righteous should be different from those who are behaviorally wicked, Makes sense? So there, there's a little bit of truth to the fact that the Torah does separate believer from unbeliever. That's true. Those who are God's people and those who are not God's people should live and act differently, particularly in regards to um, their lifestyle, right? Torah is going to help uh, define that. But it's not true that the Torah itself needs to be done away with in order to, to bridge the gap between the two peoples. In order to bring Jew and Gentile together, together, it's not necessary to destroy the Torah to do it. What we need to do is destroy the enmity, and that's what the word that Paul uses in most English translations of that Ephesians 2 passage. Destroy the enmity between the two people groups that had built up around their religious association with the Torah. So we simply need to destroy the enmity. Let's keep reading my commentary. In Messiah... Both Jews and Gentiles who embrace Yeshua, Jesus, as Lord become one new mankind, or some versions read one new humanity, or some versions just simply say one new man. And it's this one new man, this Jew and Gentile coming together under the banner of Messiah, under the collective um, designation known as Israel under the uh, label known as children of Abraham, right? They come together as, you know, two becoming one. 
It's this unity that destroys the enmity. Make sense? It's the unity of Jew and Gentile in Messiah that tears down the walls of ethnic separation and ethnic pride that existed that had been built up for centuries and had come to a head in the first few centuries uh, before Yeshua, you know, during the uh, the Maccabean revolts, this this um, this these heated uh, scuffles and 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 um, uh, battles between the Jewish communities and the increasing uh, uh, what we might call the Hellenistic influence all around them, um, Jews and Greeks essentially, uh, Jews and Gentiles if you want to use that label. So it's that eth- it's 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 that um, animosity uh, from Jew to Gentile and from Gentile back to Jew, right? Over this supposed uh, special privilege of being the people of God, or this the fact that you're not part of the people. That's what came to an end. We don't need to destroy the Torah in order to unify the people. Uh, what does Paul say in Romans 3, 20, 3, uh, 331? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? We could just insert the word as well. Do we then overthrow the law by this unity? Do we overthrow the law by this uh, one new mankind? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I could insert the the, the truth of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 back into Romans 3.31, and the verse still makes sense. So, as one new mankind, as I say in my commentary, as one new mankind, Jew and Gentile both comprise the remnant of Israel. The remnant of Israel is made up of Jew and Gentile and Messiah, and both Jew and Gentile inherit the blessings and promises of God, which includes the Torah given to Israel. I'll just pause and let that sink in. I don't really understand how it could be much clearer than that, right? God gave the Torah to Israel. God didn't give the Torah to the surrounding nations. He didn't give the Torah to non-covenantal people. God is a covenant-keeping God. And as such, the Torah, as we read in Exodus chapter 20 and following, is a covenant document. God cut a covenant with the people group, God made a covenant with them way back in the days of Genesis, around chapter 12, when he, when he called Abraham out away from his people and set into motion promises that he would bless him and multiply him. God began to describe the language of the Abrahamic covenant way back then. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we know that the fullness of this blessing finds its uh, locus finds its, its focus in Yeshua the Messiah, the ultimate son, the quintessential uh, offspring of Abraham, right? But as we Gentiles, speaking as Gentiles now, as we Gentiles place our faith in the Messiah of Israel, then we join the people group, we join the family group of Abraham, we become sons of Abraham, like Paul teaches us. And as such, the promises that were given to the people of Abraham, meaning the offspring of Jacob, aka the Jewish people, or aka the sons of Abraham, uh, the sons of Israel. The promises <clears throat> that were given to them extend to us as well, <clears throat> and this seems to only make uh, the perfect sense because God would not uh, be fair if He created two standards of holiness, two standards of righteousness, a standard for the Jewish people and a different standard 
or a secondary standard, a subsequent standard for the Gentile believers. There doesn't seem to be any hint of this, this bilateral ecclesiology, as, as theologians call it, going on in the Bible. If you read it carefully, it seems to be that there's a unity, a unity, and that's what Paul's saying in Ephesians. So let's keep reading. Um, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I think I'm going to be able to read through a, a few more paragraphs here. So uh, Paul is really not a champion of some new religion called Christianity that rallies around a new set of scriptures called the New Testament that have replaced the old people group called Israel and the old set of scriptures called the Old Testament. That doesn't seem to be the best way to read through the Bible, if you give it a fair reading. Besides, I go on to say, if Paul taught the end of law, then as a disciple of Yeshua, he would be going against the words of his master. What did Jesus say in Matthew? Quote, do not think I came to do away with the law. End quote. That's Matthew 5.17, a very well-known passage, a very uh, popular passage that's brought up in discussions between Christians and Torah, uh, Torah communities, right? Christian communities and Messianic communities over this centrality of Torah. That's why we bring it up. It's It's... You know, if Jesus came to do away with the law, then um, if Jesus came to do away with the law, then Paul, uh, if Paul then also taught that the law is done away with, then we would have some agreement. Jesus came to do away with the law, and Paul would agree in his own writings. But Jesus says, "I didn't come to do away with the law." Therefore, if Paul is going to be a good student of his uh, master Yeshua, if he's going to be a good Talmud, like we say in Hebrew then he needs to walk in the footsteps of his rabbi. And his rabbi didn't teach the laws done away with. On the contrary, his rabbi taught the um, ongoing relevance of the law. He, Although he did use his word fulfill, so let's talk about that. Yeshua clearly defined his use of the word fulfill, right? He said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And we already know in Christian circles it's it's commonly taught that the word fulfill there means that Jesus did it so that we don't have to do it anymore. Jesus performed it so we don't have to perform it. Jesus obeyed it so we don't have to obey it. And that seems to be a, uh, an interpretation of this word fulfill. But as I say in my commentary, Yeshua clearly defined his use of the word fulfill in this passage in Matthew by giving us the immediate example of Matthew 5, 19. And what does he say there? Quote, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that sounds like some shocking words, especially if you hold to the view that we don't have to concern ourselves with the commandments, that we as Gentile Christians need not focus on what the Torah of Moses says. Jesus says whoever relaxes one of even the least of the commandments and teaches others to do so. Wow, that says ouch. Those of you who might be considering relaxing the Torah and going on to teach others to relax the Torah you might want to consider what the master is saying about the warning of being called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Honestly, I don't know what Yeshua, uh, I don't know all of the ramifications of what it means to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But this part I know, this is what I do know. I don't want the master to refer to me as least. I really don't. I, I, it's not that I'm trying to have the master identify me as the greatest in the kingdom. That's not it at all. Rather, I want to be pleasing to Yeshua. I want to be pleasing to my Lord. I'm sure you do too. And if the master identifies me as least in the kingdom because I have been relaxing the commandments and as a Torah teacher or as a Bible teacher or as a preacher, as an evangelist, etc., if I've been teaching other people to relax the commandments, then I'm risking the uh, um, I'm risking having Yeshua refer to me as um, least in the kingdom, and I don't want to be in that position. I really don't. But on the other hand, Yeshua says, "Whoever does them and teaches them, right? Two 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 positions, two mindsets. Does them and teaches them, which is really the Ezra principle, right? Ezra studied in order to do, in order to teach. We read Ezra studied the Torah in order to do the Torah. He didn't study in order to teach. He studied first in order to do, and then in doing, in learning how to do it, he then was in a position to teach. So study in order to do, in order to teach." This is the same thing Yeshua is teaching here. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I don't know all of the parameters of what Yeshua means when he says great in the kingdom of heaven. But this I know. I want to be called great by the master. I want my Lord to look at me and say, Ariel, bravo. Well done. Well done, that good and faithful servant. Well done, Ariel. You are great in the kingdom of heaven. May we all be found in that position. Amen. May we all find the favor of our Lord as we walk into his words, as we seek to be pleasing to him, as we walk by the Spirit, as we turn from sin, and as we embrace the words of God and teach others to do so. So, um, as I keep reading in my commentary, based on Yeshua's words that we just read about here in Roman, I'm, I'm sorry, in Matthew, if Paul wanted to be great instead of least in the kingdom, then Paul needed to not only do the law, do the commandments, but he had to teach others to do them as well. And that brings us full circle, right? By his life, Paul not only did the Torah, he taught others to do it as well. Make sense? I think we'll be able to finish this section here. We've got about five minutes left in the uh, in the hour. Let's keep reading. Applying what we studied about the popular contest then between law and grace, as we kind of draw this section on the on the uh, conclusion of the summary section to a close, and this particular paragraph on Shomer Mitzvot and Torah observance to a close. If we apply what we studied about this popular contest that, that exists within mainstream Christian circles and mainstream messianic circles, law versus grace, etc., if we apply a better hermeneutic approach to the book of Galatians and Paul's writings as a whole, I think we're going to find that grace is indeed needed when sin blinds our eyes to believe that covenant status is granted on the basis of ethnicity, whether natural or achieved. And what I mean by natural or achieved there is that the Jews of the first century felt that they were natural covenant members based on their birth, based on the fact that they're Jewish. So their, their covenant membership was viewed as natural. They didn't have to attain it 
artificially. They didn't have to clamor after covenant membership. Um, rather, they were natural covenant members from their perspective. The Gentiles were the ones who had to achieve covenant status by becoming legally recognized Jews in the, in the religious community. And so theirs was the, uh, the covenant membership that was, we could say, artificial or achieved or man-made. And um, if we look at the book of Galatians that way, if we view it through that hermeneutic lens, we find that this type of uh, improper view of covenant membership driven by ethnicity uh, gives cause to a blindness, a blindness that God himself has to remedy, that God's Holy Spirit has to cut through and break through. Only God can open the eyes of a person who's uh, blinded by their own ethnicity. Only God can do that. Historic Israel, I go on to say in my commentary, historic Israel of the first century genuinely believed that by virtue of being born Jewish, they were automatically granted covenant status. That's what I mean by natural covenant status. And in a sense... Um, there is a covenant membership, a covenant status that is granted to them by virtue of being born uh, into Abraham's family clan. But it is not the lasting, the, the, the lasting covenant membership that Paul would have them go on to uh, achieve. Rather, it is the natural covenant membership, the, uh, the limited covenant membership. It's the earthly covenant membership that's granted when you become a Jew. And we're going to talk about that a little later, but for now, I just want you to understand that uh, there's basically two levels to covenant membership. There's there's uh, limited covenant membership, and there's lasting covenant membership. So historic Israel had this, this, this mindset that if you're born a Jew, then you're automatically guaranteed lasting covenant status. But in reality, they were getting lasting covenant status confused with limited covenant status. What's more, as I go on to say, from their point of view, from the Jewish community's point of view, if someone from non-Jewish stock wished to join the covenant people, all he or she needed to do was to convert to Judaism, right? Take on legal Jewish status, hence my use of the terms natural and achieved respectively. Natural Israelites, those native-born, right, those people who were born into Jewish uh, heritage, they held to the prevailing theology of that day that the Torah was given to maintain the covenant status that was already acquired at birth. And this, I think, this sentence that I just stated here, um, Torah was given to maintain the covenant status already acquired at birth, I think that is an extremely important viewpoint to consider when studying through the book of Galatians and trying to make sense of this idea of what was the role that Torah played in the life of a first century covenant member of Paul's day? In, in short, most Christians believe that the Jews of Paul's day were leveraging Torah to become covenant members. Meaning, if I keep the Torah, then God will save me. God will grant me lasting covenant status. But as we study the writings of Paul and corroborate the theology that we read there with the extant writings that have survived from that day, meaning the rabbinic uh, literature that we're, that's available to us today, the, the, the Mishnah, the Talmud, uh, the Gemara, you know, the, the, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Talmud, uh, as well as some of the other uh, extra-biblical writings that, that have survived from that period, from the, from the early first centuries, early, early centuries. What we're going to find is that 
the theology that teaches that the Torah must be leveraged in order to attain covenant membership is not really the best um, way to interpret uh, their own viewpoint of Torah. Instead, um, it, it's better to understand that the Jewish people of the first century believed that their covenant status was acquired at birth. They were born with covenant status that they equated with lasting covenant status. They, think, they thought they were born Jews, they would die Jews, and that they would resurrect as Jews in the age to come uh, because and all of this was based on uh, their, their birth order, their ethnicity. Rather, covet, uh, uh, Torah came along to help help them uh, maintenance that uh, covenant status, to help them keep that covenant status. In other words, to keep them away from gross idolatry, um, from, from breaking the commandments uh, needlessly, remorselessly, to help them return to a state of ritual purity when they fell into um, these types of defilement became unclean. The sacrificial system uh, achieved that purpose. Things like that. The Torah wasn't. And what I'm trying to say is this: it doesn't seem best to 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 accuse the Jewish people of the first century of trying to keep the Torah to become saved. That that I think is a Christian invention. I really do. I think that's a, a, a an historic Gentile uh, caricature that's imposed on the text, and it ends up um, discrediting the Torah. Uh, it, it ends up discrediting the Jewish people's um, uh, proper understanding of God's grace. They really didn't think they were trying to earn their way into uh, covenant membership. They really thought that they that God graciously granted it to them based on election. So as I keep reading the ger, right, the Hebrew for stranger, uh, the alien, etc., the ger, the, 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 the non-Jew, he was deemed as someone in the process of, of becoming a Jew via the vehicle of proselyte conversion, because again, the big, um, the the big, uh, the important um, identity that one needed to attain in the first century was not necessarily uh, Torah observant. Rather, the the most the primary identity that one needed to attain to was Jewish Jewish ethnicity, and so that's why we have this proselyte ceremony conversion proselyte ceremony. Whatever that is that was man-made, that that's what's really kind of upsetting the whole process is uh, uh, pushing the the, the Jewish-only um, covenant membership policies uh, to the extent that Gentiles are being forced to become Jews, sometimes forced against their will, uh, but many times coerced into becoming Jews, um, uh, you know, convinced that unless they become Jews, that God will not recognize their covenant status, and that God will not bless them, and that God will not grant them a place in heaven, a.k.a. the world to come, a.k.a. eternity. Meaning, heaven is a, a Jewish-only concept. The Torah was a Jewish-only concept in the first century. Covenant membership was a Jewish-only concept. The Holy Spirit was a Jewish-only concept. In a word, um, a religious Judaism of the first century had hijacked God and uh, held him uh, hostage and would not let anyone else join the group unless they went through the conversion steps. So as I conclude in my final um, paragraph here to this section, and we'll conclude our study tonight with this uh, paragraph, Shaul, Paul, actually went to great lengths to refute such teaching in his letters 
both to the Romans and the Galatians, this teaching of the, the um, proselyte conversion policy for Gentiles, the, 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 the teaching that the Torah is for Jews only, the teaching that uh, covenant membership is driven by Jewish ethnicity. Paul went to great lengths to refute this teaching, and so should we, as I say kind of uh, heatedly, right? This, this I, I just have to stop just, just for 10 seconds and stand on the soapbox this nonsense in, in current uh, Messianic uh, communities that, that the Torah is for Jews only. Please, people, please read Paul again. If Paul heard what we're teaching in, our, in the current Torah movements of today, that the Torah is only for Jews and that Gentiles are second-class citizens in the Torah communities, Paul would turn over in his grave. Please, please read through the book of Galatians again and consider that this was in fact the poison that Paul, by the power of the risen Messiah and the power of the Holy Spirit, sought to dismantle. So, I'll step off the soapbox now. To be sure, if we modern Christians, if we apply this hermeneutic to those letters, to, to primarily say I'm picking on Romans and Galatians, but this extends to uh, the book of Acts and Ephesians as well. If we if we apply this hermeneutic, instead of adopting this grace versus law hermeneutic that's so popular in Christian circles, uh, then I think you're going to find that the apostle begins to make more sense theologically and historically. It is a very sad legacy that if you stroll into your average Christian bookstore and uh, browse through the section on commentaries for Galatians and Paul and Romans, Ephesians, things like that, predominantly you're going to find this law versus grace uh, theology hermeneutic that just rises to the surface. Uh, it just it, it floods the entire scene, and it, it's, it's almost impossible to read a Christian commentary on Galatians these days and not walk away with the, with the fact that the, uh, the the commentary is teaching that the law opposes grace and that the law loses in the contest between grace and law. The law loses every time. Grace trumps the law, and uh, it's 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 very sad in my opinion. It's it we really need to um, we really need to get some more uh, uh, accurate commentaries, at least a more uh, historically accurate view, theologically accurate view, more commentaries on the shelf. Right, so I'm convinced, as I say in my commentary, I'm convinced now more than ever, right, more now than ever, that a foundational understanding of Paul's writings must, must, must take into account the historical fact that first century Israel reckoned herself as right standing before Hashem on the basis of ethnicity alone. And we read ethnicity there as being Jewish. And I think if you start from that perspective, you'll begin to see Paul's letters open up in a way that you never had before. I realize it's a paradigm shift, right? It's a real mindset. It's it's a it's difficult to to not uh, instantly just default to the traditional Christian view that Paul's teaching the abrogation of the law in favor of uh, grace and Messiah or something like that. But I think if you try it out, uh, you'll see and pray, of course, obviously pray that God's Spirit will reveal truth to you. I think you'll find that it's a better way to read Paul, and you'll find it's a better way to approach the Scriptures as a whole. And to be sure, you're going to find yourself attracted to Torah more and more because you're going to realize that it's not done away with. You're going to want to do what God says, as is written in the first five books of Moses, because you're going to realize that far from um, separating Jew and Gentile from one another, the Torah is actually designed to unify us.
It's designed to unify us. So with that, I read this final uh, sentence in my uh, uh, paragraph tonight, in my commentary tonight. Israel didn't believe that keeping the Torah equaled positional forensic righteousness. She didn't wield the Torah to bring her into the covenant. She concluded, albeit incorrectly, right? It was still wrong, but it was, this is what she concluded. This is this is ethnic Israel. She concluded that keeping Torah was the vehicle that one used to maintain covenant status already achieved either at birth or by conversion. And we know that that position is wrong as well, right? You can't keep the Torah to be saved, but you can't also wield the Torah to maintain your salvation. Either, either position is a mistaken use of Torah, right? You have to realize that. You have to, you have to stop and check yourself. Even though we know that Israel probably didn't use Torah to become saved or to become covenant members, but rather she was using Torah to maintain covenant membership that she gained at birth, we know that the second position is also invalid in terms of correct theology, even though that's the historic position that we encounter as we read through the, and study the book of Galatians. So with that, let's close down the commentary tonight. Let's uh, poise ourselves next week. We're going to turn to the top of page 82, and we'll start talking about the promise, the promise, the promise of Abraham, the promise that we read about in the book of Galatians, the promise given to both Jew and Gentile, trust and obey. All right, let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you, Lord, for bringing us together under the banner of Messiah, under the blood of Yeshua, the Messiah, under his wonderful holy name. We know that it is not Jew that is elevated above Gentile. And we know it's not Gentile that brings to an end Jewish identity. We know, Lord, that as believers, both Jews and Gentiles, we have been brought together as one new man wearing the garment of Yeshua, our Lord, putting on his holiness, walking into his standard of righteousness. And in doing so, Lord, we become pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, thank you for drawing us close together, for drawing us together, for tearing down the enmity that existed between the two groups, for causing us to realize that the Torah is not for Jews only. Lord, for opening our eyes to understand that our Jewish ethnicity is not what brings us into a right relationship that does not cause us to be declared, does not declare us, uh, cause us to be declared righteous in your eyes, but rather it is being found in Messiah that causes us to be declared as dikaiosune, to be declared as righteous, justified by your side. Thank you, Lord, that it, that it is by this righteousness, the righteousness of Messiah, that we can be lights to the rest of the world, that we can be salt, that we can be a witness to the other people groups, drawing them close to you, drawing them close to the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, inviting them to join the people group, inviting them to join the one new humanity, the one new man of Ephesians chapter 2. We're not trying to convert people to Judaism. We're not trying to con really even to convert people to Christianity. We're trying to bring them into the people group of God, which is composed of Jews and Gentiles, called the one new man. And as one new man, we embrace Torah. Do we nullify the Torah by this faith? No, Paul says, we uphold the law. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to do away. You didn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill it, but to demonstrate 
how to walk into Torah, how to be pleasing to the Father, how to live a life that is recognized as righteous by God, not only on a justification level, but on a behavioral level. Thank you, Lord, that all of this is possible as we avail ourselves of the truth of your words. Help us to continue to walk in your spirit and to press into your holiness. Forgive us of sin and help us to turn away from it. Thank you, Lord, for this study on Galatians and bless each and every student tonight. Draw us close together once again next week as we uh, embark on another study. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.